From Future Founders HQ in the podcasting studio at 1871 in downtown Chicago, this is The Insider. Your fast pass for the latest news, tools, and debates for young entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening. Welcome, guys. You're listening to the Future Founders podcast. I'm Chris Roach from Recruit Shoot, 2018 member of Future Founders and now alumni. And I'm on this call with Murderzer and Swanoff. If you guys would like to introduce yourselves and just talk a little bit about your companies. Yeah, for sure, man. So Murderzer Bambot here. My company is Career Blitz. We built an AI platform that helps world-class recruiting teams automatically find and engage with great candidates. So we went through Future Founders the same two years ago, raised some funding now. We're out in the Bay, but actually like headquartered in Atlanta. Hey, uh, this is Swarnav Espajari. I am the founder of Touchlight. And we help homeowners and commercial property owners achieve a $0 bill through a electricity and energy management automation tool that we have developed over the years. We went through future founders in the 2017 batch, and uh, I've been an alumni since. We're headquartered in Brooklyn, New York, but we have a sales office in Santa Clara, California. Awesome. And I'm Chris Roach from Recruit Shoot. Recruit Shoot is a online platform to help streamline the recruitment process for high school aged athletes. I'm also a current partner in Ironforge Development, which is a custom software development shop. So this conversation, we'll be discussing a lot about how it actually works with building a tech startup. Um, I myself am a non-technical founder. I know Murders are kind of is, is on the edge and has done some technical, but is more into the non-technical recently. And um, so I guess Murders, you know, first kind of question, you know, what's it like launching a tech startup? And for you going from that, that definitely the technology side to the non-technical side, how has that transition been and how has it been actually evolving the company? Yeah, of course, man. So like I, I started off, you know, coding a lot of the base infrastructure for the actual company. What ended up happening is, you know, we're an AI company, so it takes a ton of actual industry and domain expertise to be able to do this. And so once it came to a lot of the hard tech work, that's really where my co-founder kind of takes the wheel because he has a, a much denser research background there that's applicable. From that, you know, the, the obvious transition being a founder is going into sales. And so, you know, I, I kind of joke around, especially with other founders, that being both an engineer and both a salesperson means that you're not good at engineering and you're not good at sales. But I think the value of it is, is that, you know, as you're doing both sides, you're able to understand what the, you know, opposite business function is going to be able to understand. So you can engineer stuff that you know is going to go on the actual revenue plan and sell and resonate with customers. And then when you're talking to customers too, like the ability to promise features on the fly or the ability to help offer some type of configurations for teams that you know is going to be easy for engineering, I think that bridge helps out a ton. And I know especially when I started off on the founder journey, making sure I had at least some technical expertise was a, a big part of what I wanted to do. Great. So you really are batting for both teams in kind of every sense of the word then, aren't you? Correct. Yeah. And then Swanoff, where, where do you fall on the spectrum between technical and non-technical founder? I actually started off mostly as a technical founder on that front, primarily spinning the entire company out through research projects that were going on. So I typically started off, especially when it came to the MVP development um, for the product, it was me going out, speaking with initial customers and such, and then slowly recruiting in friends that I knew were highly technical in certain aspects of development that I wasn't good at. So everyone at the end of the day, uh, that's kind of in this limbo position of 
I can be the technical founder, but I can also be the non-technical one um, playing that small gap. I've definitely found that it's really better to look for specific skill sets. Some people are really good at front-end web development. Some are really good at back-end. Some are really good at machine learning and AI and finding friends and individuals in your network who can complement your weaknesses in those spaces is how I really went around building our technical team out. And Chris, you actually have an interesting background because you've mainly built the company without any technical background, but still having a decently technical product. Yeah, I mean, it, it was very frustrating at the start. You know, again, we're kind of all three sides represented here because I'm a complete non-technical founder. I still can't develop anything. Um, I can build basic Wix websites after three years of earning a tech startup. So for me, it was very much about I've always been able to sell the product. It's just for really the first six to 12 months, the product wasn't good enough to sell. So we were selling, you know, things that didn't work. We were selling, you know, really an MVP that shouldn't have been in the market. So for me, it was very difficult to find that team to actually build the product and find that non-technical founder. Obviously, when you're starting the company, um, sorry, technical founder, when you're starting the company, it's very difficult to be able to actually go and find that team um, because you don't have any resources to do that. So for me, you know, I've always believed that the best CEOs are salespeople. And I know from your, your standpoint now, is that, you know, you've adapted more into that sales role. Um, and in terms of building your team, you know, what are the things that you're looking for when you are building that team from that early stage startup? Uh, yeah, no. So I know for us, um, it, it's really interesting because I, I think that, I actually think that the, the best CEOs aren't always salespeople. I think they're a good dual role. Um, I think like it's somebody that has to understand the, the technology to a deep perspective, but still somebody that has to be able to sell it. And so that's why it's like a, it's a very, very tough role to fill because you've got to be able to bat for both teams like that. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting. You're a, product You're a product person is effectively it. You have to be able exactly. to understand what it takes to develop a product. So that you can correlate that to any technical engineering team that you might be able to recruit, much like how Chris mentioned. But it also comes back down to sales. If you can't find a customer base willing to pay for the product, then there is nothing there to be building a company for. If, if you as a CEO aren't good at product as a whole, it's very difficult to get any form of a tech company off the ground. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's honestly, I think even just for you to be able to work with both teams, like your, your vision and your passion kind of has to be able to espouse into the work that both teams do. And it's really tough to do that if you don't understand the conversations going on in one half of the hallway. Chris, I, I think one of the things that like really surprised me too, when we first started talking, what a year, year and a half ago is that even when I think, you know, bringing on a tech firm is like a hard thing to do. Tell me a little bit more about once you guys actually brought on the tech firm, how did you kind of roll with the punches? Because it's a steep learning curve there, isn't it? So like, how do you kind of get up to speed there and actually understand what's going on in a lot of those conversations? So for me, a lot of the communication was the biggest part when I actually moved from working with freelancers to actual development shops. So most people that come to me when they start a tech company, the first thing they want to do is they want to outsource this MVP to, you know, usually offshore development. And one of the things that I always kind of urge them to stay away from is taking that initial risk because it's whilst the hourly rate to do that may be a lot lower than using US-based developers, there is a huge risk that you're not going to have that communication. Ultimately, you're not going to have that end product delivered when you do start to build that. So for me, I kind of learned the hard way. I went with... Um, Indian developers at first, then I moved to European, then I also worked with US freelancers, and I kind of went through that process to get me to that MVP, um, and really 
the product to the market. And at that point, we went out to fundraise to really build this commercial level platform. Um, I was very fortunate in the team that I worked with. They have a lot of experience in actually building tech startups. So they were able to guide me a lot more than I think most development shops are able to. And um, even to the point where they actually sat in on fundraising meetings with me um, to be able to kind of help me get to that next point. And then once I was successful, at fundraising, I was able to go and build this commercial level platform. And then it's been maintained ever since by this, you know, by this software development firm. So for me, I've never really had to have really a hand in any of the technical side of things, which is obviously very unique for someone that owns a, you know, a tech startup. It, for me, it was almost like finding a co-founder, um, but that co-founder happened to be a development shop rather than the individual, um, which was, it was a different way of doing it. Um, but I would do it the, the same way again, if I had, you know, if I had the option to go through this process again. From my kind of perspective, and I'd love to also hear Chris and your opinion as well on this. I think the hardest thing at, at the end of the day is really building that initial team because everyone starts off as a single founder. Some individual has to have an individual idea. They got to start working on that idea in some way, shape, or form, and that's how they eventually recruit people behind that vision. Um, but really what was my biggest challenge when we were on the up and come up is I made the standard mistake that most founders make is, hey, this is really cool technology. How do we find a market to shove this into? So as opposed to necessarily really finding a problem to solve, it was, no, 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 no. trust me, this can solve a hundred different things. Just use it because it's real in terms of technology. So before we started really focusing in on building this kind of a software automation platform, and focusing on other kind of hardware um, that we've implemented. We actually started off in 2016 manufacturing these things called kinetic tiles, effectively things that you could drive on or walk on and it generates electricity. This is something that was highly technical, leveraging specific kind of gearings and mechanisms that took many years to get to a point where it could be even commercially viable or installed. We had no sales. We were funded off grants and small little competition winnings here and there. And uh, eventually when those things start to run out and you have a quote unquote prototype, you have to get out into the market to try and sell. Needless to say, it didn't get the reception that we were hoping for. So the way we actually learned or I taught myself about sales and marketing was literally just failing multiple times to get different pieces of technology that we had developed in the energy space off the ground. And for me, what made it easiest um, to really get out of this space and really start to sell was on the standpoint of really breaking product down into three different phases. There is a solution-based sell. After that solution-based sell, it becomes a feature-based sell, and then it becomes an enterprise-grade sell. Um, and the reason I bucket them into those three things is because it keeps me from going straight to the enterprise-level product saying, it needs to do this, 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 and 500 different other things, which is what you would need for an enterprise-grade product. But when you break it down to what is the problem, what is the solution this thing can solve, you really get a true MVP from that. Yeah, I was going to say, I think definitely, you know, most entrepreneurs are at this point, you know, a lot of companies start because they had an entire problem, and then they're coming up with, coming up with their solution. Let's take it back to when we all first started. You know, you have this problem in the market, you know you want to try and solve it, you're coming up with these solutions, and then how do you go and fundraise? How do you get some money? How do you even get to square one when you know you know you have a problem? That's great. Everyone can can have an idea for a business, you know, the business ideas with diamond doesn't. How do you actually take that and start to go and get credibility with investors and um, with potential users, with your peers? How do you actually assess and kind of get any credibility? 
when you're just a you know, 19, 20-year-old kid and it's like, great, let's go and start a business. Yeah, good. Like Everyone wants to go and do that. You know, Not everyone is going to be that Zuckerberg. How is it that you go and actually pitch investors and go and say, hey, I need $150,000, $200,000 just to, just to give this a go? Yeah, that's a good question because I know, especially when we first started, it was such a daunting task to be able to say like, oh, what we're building today is going to now go out and become a billion dollar company. I think it comes in a lot of stages, right? I think it's very easy to say like, okay, let's start off, let's go raise funding, like that's the obvious next step and let's do all these things. My, my background, right, is software, right? And software itself, especially as an engineer, is, is cheap to build um, compared to like any kind of hardware product. And, and I can see Swarnov is definitely agreeing over there. And so with software, I think the recommendation I always give to teams and other founders that I talk to is like, look, you know, you've got this idea um, and you're passionate about it. If you can code, go out and start coding it. If you're in college, that's the best place to be because now you can go find people in the CS department, right? You can hang around the hackathons or you can just go do studying in uh, whatever the, the computer science buildings are over there and just meet people, right? And it's these like random collisions that come in at different points in time that you kind of start leveraging as far as relationships that build your company. And I think for a lot of companies, especially when they first start, the initial goal is like funding, like let's get money into the company because especially as a tech startup, right? You get that big tech crunch article and you get to like, you know, go talk to your friends about it and things like that. But the real thing that I think most founders should immediately go after as soon as they've, even if they have or have not built a solution is revenue. What we did is we had built a couple solutions in the past and they had been actually more on the business consumer side. So they were like job boards and things like that. But when we pivoted to what we're doing as a company today, we sold that as a PowerPoint deck. Like we went in, we made some screenshots with like little buttons and things and we clicked around and said, hey, do you wanna buy this? And until somebody said yes, we didn't write a line of code. So I think for, for most first time founders, like that's the easiest way to go about this is go sell, get a customer on board. If it's like a B2C product or you have an app you want a bunch of people to use, go sign up like your next 100, 200 friends and just put them in on email list and then get them ready and teed up to, to go jump on this product and then actually build it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point is to start selling even before the product's built. You know, validating the market is the, uh, the, the technical term that everyone pushes it towards, but just getting some kind of proof that what you're working towards is going to have any success. You know, if you can't get people to sign up for it and if you can't get people to even express an interest in it, at that point, you've got to start questioning, is it actually worth building and is it worth, you know, really throwing all that time and effort into, um, you know, for us, a lot of things that we wanted to do was get out there and get that initial validation. So we built, you know, literally just an onboarding screen for players to be able to go on and sign up for. And then within a couple of weeks, we had a couple of hundred players that had signed up. And at that point for us, it was like, right, this is something that I think we can start to grow. I think it is important to start off as small as possible, as strange as that sounds. And one of the rules that I always say is that, you know, the most expensive feature you're going to build is something that people don't use because it's a waste of money. In terms of, you know, from startups, you know, we've all seen the Snapchats and Twitters, the Facebook, the Amazon, you know, they go out, they raise a lot of money and then they lose a lot of money every year and try and get to that point of being profitable, of being profitable, you know, a couple of years down the line. How realistic is that as owning a tech startup or how important is it just to say, hey, we're just going to go and grow at a steady rate while we can continue to make money? Uh, well, I think, you know, as a tech startup, especially if you want to be like a venture backed startup, that, that grow at a steady rate line is actually not what you want, right? What you want is that hockey stick growth. And so it's figuring out how do we get to the point and tee up everything so that we have the infrastructure to do that. Because especially, you know, when you go out fundraising, the story you need to be able to tell is how does this company make $100 million in year five? The interesting thing, though, that I think a lot of people don't know is that all of these companies like Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, they were all making some money in year one. 
like Facebook was already selling, uh, you know, ads to different teams. There was this whole issue where like Facebook was basically, uh, or Coca-Cola reached out to Facebook and they wanted to pay Facebook like a ridiculous amount of money to turn the site green for a day for like Sprite's big campaign. Uh, and then Facebook said no, because they didn't want to compromise on the actual like colors and the, the uh, brand of the company. And so for years, Coca-Cola never advertised on Facebook just because of that like one slide because it went really badly. And so, you know, one of our advisors is actually like one of the part of the founding team of Yik Yak over in Atlanta. Um, and I think they really opened our eyes up to the fact that even as a B2C company, there's a lot of ways that you can start generating revenue on day one. And you should absolutely be focusing on that because when you're talking to investors or when you're talking to really anyone, you need to prove out the model that this is a platform people want to put in money on to invest, uh, to, to uh, you know, grow their brand. Yeah. And, and I think that what you're really hitting on at the end of the day, fundamentally, you don't want to be focused on, I need to be going out and raising capital. And I see a lot of first time founders and second time founders, what they do is they get into this market and the state saying, I can't do anything unless I raise capital. Um, And yes, there is that limitation of, you know, hey, you need money and you need time both at the same time to build anything out that might be legitimate. But fundamentally, I I really do think that what you're hitting on is get out of the mindset of don't focus on going to an investor and hoping that you can pitch them. Because when you're building the company and focused on really growing that user base, you'll naturally start to see investors want to come in and invest into you because they're seeing that growth from the outside. Chris, talk to me a little bit about kind of your perspective too, right? Because I think when you guys went through the fundraising cycle, it was also very different kind of the way you sold and and brought up your business because you were working with a technical agency to do a lot of that. And then kind of when you did that, you were parallel and in parallel, you were also a lot of doing a lot of the sales too, right? So like, what did that process look like for you being a non-tech founder, raising for a tech company and selling at the same time? Yeah, so for me, you know, in terms of credibility, I just had zero credibility in terms of um, technical background. You know, I just, I, I couldn't get into even the conversations about that. And that was something that I think in hindsight, I should have done a lot more research before we've begun on just exactly how it is that the software was going to be working. And um, now this allowed me when we bought, when we actually built out our MVP, you know, for us, we actually had two platforms running simultaneously. So for us, we built out this MVP and we were able to prove that we had traction and revenue. You know, in the first, I think it was the first six months, we had a couple thousand users that had signed up onto our platform and we were already starting to generate revenue on that. And when we first launched the platform to test and, and whether- how did you get those first thousand users? Sorry to interrupt. Like for the people that are just starting yeah. this out, how do they do that? Yeah, for us, Instagram was a very successful platform that we used. We also created Facebook groups. And this is, again, something that I think that everyone should be doing even before they start the software and software build out is actually to start forming these little pockets where you can start to try and bring users on. You know, So we established ourselves as thought leaders. And then for us, we started going to a lot of events. We went to conventions, we went to conferences, we went to different showcase events. And in person, we were able to get people signed up. So for us, it was very much, it was a, it was a tedious start to getting people signed up, but we also had no money to actually go out and pay for marketing because we didn't fundraise and we never fundraised for business development, which is something that is, is a little bit unique because we were always cash flow positive. We only ever fundraised for the actual development of the software. 
purely because we didn't have a full-time developer on staff and we didn't have a technical founder. So for us, when we fundraised, we put all of that into building this commercial level platform whilst we had our current MVP in the market. And then we actually ran them both simultaneously for a couple of weeks while we migrated all of the users over. And from there, we were able to really start to travel around and start to bring on clubs, you know, all over. So it was, it was very much a unique way of trying to get started. And for us, you know, we, because of the fact that we focused on revenue first and foremost before everything else and um, it meant that we were able to grow very steadily that being said if we've gone out and fundraised at that initial um point when we had the idea and we validated the market i do think we would have grown quicker but again i wouldn't have owned the percent of the business that i do today so it's 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 really is that balance of you know do you want to own all of a grape or a percentage of a watermelon so with all software you're going to get what you pay for you know if you're looking at having something and you have a us-based development shop quote you hundred thousand dollars to build it and then you have an international development shop quote you twenty five thousand dollars to build it there is always going to be the risk that it doesn't turn out to be um you know the entire product or it isn't built to the quality that you want you know in terms of hiring any development shop you want to always vet the work that they've done you want to look at their current clients um, and actually talk to their current clients as you're going forward with that and you pitch into an investor there's a couple of different kinds of risk that they're looking to really remove and that's is the do you have the market validation have you already proven that this is going to be something that you can take to market and people are actually interested in in, in really using does this solution solve a real problem and the other thing is you know with problems how big is the magnitude of the problem and uh, because if it's a small problem that no one cares about you can come up with a great solution but it's still not going to be used and then the second thing is how big is the risk of actually building that technology so if you've got a development shop behind you that's built successful technology already and able to show that to investors it just removes two of the three um, really key elements of risk there yeah and i definitely agree with what you're saying about the the dev agency side too i think silicon valley has this like love affair of like only working with technical founders but in the realistic sense like good businesses are started by non-technical teams even all the way up till right after you raise a seed round that's like you know post seed is when you can say like hey let's start building out this dev team in-house and start making sure that it's you know a little bit more scalable and longer lasting but for most startups i say the same thing is just you know go fast build things break things and then you know get something valuable in front of your customer that they can't live without right well i think we are going to have to wrap up and um, so kind of as we move towards this you know if, if you guys don't mind just sharing one piece of final advice the best thing you can do for yourself is just get started. There's a high likelihood the idea you started off with is not the idea that you are going to be working on or is going to get you into revenue. Quit giving yourself excuses that, you know, hey, I don't have a technical co-founder or I don't even have a partner who's good at sales and marketing. At the end of the day, the, the person who gets the help on the side of the road with a broken down car is the person that's actually trying to push his car and people will eventually stop to help out as opposed to you just standing on the side of the road waving to get someone to come over and help out. I love that analogy of, uh, of pushing the car. I've never heard it framed that way. The, the way I kind of think about it too is, is really like at no point is anybody in their life ready to start a business, right? Like this isn't something where, you know, you go to school and you learn about, this isn't something where, oh, I've worked at a big company. Now I can figure out how to start a business. Uh, you just kind of have to do it to learn it. You know, there's a lot of really, really tough days. And so what I always recommend to, to other founders is really, really rely on discipline, not motivation. Because I think motivation is very fleeting and it comes and goes. But discipline yourself enough to say, today I'm going to work on my business for three hours. Today I'm going to work on it for five hours. This weekend I'm going to get this thing done and we're going to push it out or we're going to make it live. 
yeah, just to jump on the back of that, you know, you know, you're not going to know everything. Um, I still don't know most of the stuff that's going on with my business. You know, it, it's okay to be in that situation. If you do start working hard, if you get on the road, if you go to meetings, if you take, you know, the, the steps that the people aren't taking, you know, one of the, one of my favorite quotes is when you're starting a business, do everything that's unscalable, um, which sounds really, really strange. But the fact is, is that when you're starting the business, you want to be able to go out there and take every meeting you can. You know, if that requires driving five hours for a 30 minute meeting, just do it. And that's the hardest thing to get is that first customer. Once you've got that first customer, you can leverage that to get your second customer. Alrighty guys, you've been listening to the Future Founders Podcast. It's been Chris Murdeza and Swanoff. If you do have any questions with me, you can reach out to me at roach at ironforge.co. And Murdeza, how do we get hold of you? Do you want me to give him the cell phone number? Uh, cell phone number uh, would be great, but email works even better. Uh, <laughs> so Murdeza, M-U-R-T-A-Z-A at careerblitz.io. But the best way to reach me is ideally through Instagram or Twitter at Swarnov Espajari is my handle. That's the fastest way I will probably respond. I can see if I can help out from there. Thanks, guys. The Future Founders podcast is produced by the Future Founders team. Thanks for listening.